0: Hey, this is the Grants Interest Rate Observer podcast. I am Jim Grant. With me today, Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grants, the great Lorenz, uh, Phil Grant, who runs our Almost Daily Grants daily briefing, almost daily, and Eric Whitehead at the Dials. And we are sponsored by Grants, which um, has a fabulous website and uh, and also some pretty fine publications, I must say, Grants Interest Rate Observer. We are sponsored as well by Health IQ, which is all about How hard bodies can get uh, advantageous insurance rates and Casper mattress. So after you work out for an hour and a half, two hours a day, as you should, and plop yourself down on a Casper, which is an actually it's a risk-free mattress, which reminds me a little bit of treasury bills, but Casper is more comfortable. So Evan, let's begin with the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve has a problem, has a demographic problem. It is an underpopulated institution. Now, one could say there are three vacancies at the moment, but looking ahead, a mere month or so, one could say there are four vacancies. And perhaps if Janet Yellen is uh, given the old defenestration, there could be five. Five opportunities for Donald Trump, President of the United States, to make his mark on monetary policy. Now Evan, what is President Trump's uh, philosophy of central banking?
1: He's admitted that he's a low interest rate guy.
0: I didn't ask that. I meant his philosophy of central banking.
1: I don't think he has a philosophy of Correct. anything.
0: Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure to go that far, but he has no evident philosophy of central banking. But we do know he is a man who is observant of uh, personal niceties. He uh, respects and uh, expects Respect from his subordinates. And when he doesn't get it, as he did not get it from Gary Cohn, who was, if I must say so, posturing a bit about uh, his moral superiority, Gary's. With respect to Charlottesville, Donald Trump is occasionally known to uh, bear and carry a grudge. I think he is not perhaps as inclined as he might have been before to appoint Gary Cohn the new chairman of the Fed. Now, let us say that uh, Janet Yellen does not continue. And let us say that uh, Donald Trump looks for a new chairman or chairwoman. So there are some possibilities that have been floated. One is, uh, is John Taylor, who is best known for the uh, eponymous Taylor Rule, He's an economist, is Taylor, and he's got a rule. And I am, Evan, I am not going to go into the details. For one thing, they would be tedious. For second thing, I have no idea what he's talking about, Mr. Taylor. But I do know, because uh, you yourself, Evan, have pointed me to the website of the Atlanta Federal Reserve System, Federal Reserve Bank, that if the Taylor rule were in effect on August 15th, the funds rate would be not one point a little bit, it would be 2.96, almost three percentage points of federal funds. And how would you like that, Mr. Market? Probably not so much. Yeah, I think that's fair. So that is the essential look at uh, John Taylor. Now, there's another contender uh, whose name has been tossed about. His name is Kevin Warsh. And Kevin Warsh was a governor of the uh, the Federal Reserve System during the dark days of 2008 more important than that credential, as important as that might be, Kevin Warsh spoke at a grants conference in the spring of 2016. And he would make an interesting candidate with Warsh for the chairmanship of the Fed, because what he has to say is, is not uncritical of the way the Fed does business. In fact, Uh, Kevin Walsh, without being too specific, told the audience at the grants conference that uh, uh, the time had come for, quote, fundamental reform, close quote, of the Fed. And one can infer a little bit what uh, Mr. Walsh meant by fundamental reform by recalling the drift of his remarks and some specifics. And uh, what he said was, uh, he said, uh, the Fed talks and talks and talks about being data-dependent data dependent. We've all heard this a million times. And he said, uh, addressing the audience, none of you are making decisions in your businesses based on three-month-old data that is backward-looking and subject to a ton of revision. So he he is... Uh, he's got, I think, a good, healthy skepticism of this preoccupation with the Fed, this kind of constantly uttered refrain, unreflective, unthoughtful, I say, refrain of a data dependency. That's one thing he said. Another thing he said uh, was that uh, this QE, quantitative easing. By the way, the central banks of the world are st- are still purchasing on a monthly basis $175 billion, with A, B, as in Bravo, billion dollars worth of assets, bonds, stocks, what have you, ETFs. And what Warsh contended in his speech was uh, that This this buying of stocks and bonds and what have you has driven a wedge between the real economy of plant property and equipment, the workaday world of production on the one hand, and financial assets on the other. Uh, Neither does that sound especially bullish for Mr. Market. Kevin Warsh spoke most respectfully, and even with some admiration about Ben Bernanke. He said that in the dark days of 2008, he took action. The action was, on the whole, positive. It forestalled what might have been a crisis. Uh, Can you agree with that or not? Anyway, Kevin Warsh's view is that uh, Ben Bernanke, in the crisis, was a very, very important and constructive force in American finance. But he begged to differ and differ substantially with the former chairman and with the current management over this matter of models and these recondite notions of cause and effect that the Fed seems to believe and the other central banks of the world do as well. You know, uh, Evan, uh, Chairman Bernanke, was wont to say that it takes a model to beat a model. Or if you don't like the dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium model, which did such a great job of predicting what well, 2008, it didn't predict it at all. If you don't like that model, said Bernanke, you have to come up with another one. Well, here's a model. How about uh, the model is that humans interacting in markets about money are just as predictable as human beings interacting in situations of romance about love. Both very emotional topics. Uh, Human behavior is uh, predictable, you'd think, uh, but you think the weather might be predictable, but just check your phone app. I've been to this station before on this particular channel, I won't belabor it, but if you look at your phone app and take on faith the fact that it's gonna rain a week from Thursday, you're gonna be disappointed. The sun will shine, it will snow, it will sleet, it will mist, it will not rain. That's the rule. And yet the Fed purports to see out in the future. And anyway, Kevin Walsh was of that view, I'm pleased to say. And he further said, quoting Milton Friedman, who evidently was his professor someplace, maybe at Stanford a million years ago. When Kevin Warsh was 19 years old, he heard this from Milton Friedman, quote, everything we know about economics is contained in Economics 101. The rest is surmise, guesswork, and bluff. That's refreshing, right? So as I heard Kevin Warsh talk to our audience in the spring 2016 grants conference, what I heard was that uh, uh, there would be changes made were he to be in a position to run the institution. So I'm thinking that I'm thinking that the world is less predictable with regard to interest rates than the world apparently thinks. And and you, Evan, pointed out that the people who handicap the likelihood of a funds rate based upon the structure of the funds market and sentiment and what have you can't find a larger than 50% chance of a rise in the funds rate until a year from now, correct?
1: Yeah, exactly a year from now.
0: All right. So again, this this presupposes a level of foreknowledge that is just, it's almost like a, like a superstition. People insist on believing things they can't know, especially about the future. Although, as I say, as an amateur practitioner of history, it's not so easy predicting the past either. Be that as it may, the market is of a rather dogmatic view that nothing is going to happen for 12 months on the funds rate front. Now, that might be. I I think there's a chance, and not a small chance, that we're going to run into some sort of financial heavy weather, and there will be a cut before there'll be a rise. That's guesswork, too. But what if, uh, I don't know, what if John Taylor becomes the Fed chairman? Now, he will probably deny that he is anything like a mechanistic advocate of his own rule. He would probably say that you must take the rule with other forces in the world and uh, and do the sensible thing. I'm just guessing he might say that. I, I'm guessing he will not dogmatize the Taylor rule. But the mere fact that John Taylor comes to the fore as a candidate for the chairmanship is going to introduce a new element of uncertainty. Why shouldn't the funds market react? Why shouldn't money market conditions tighten? And if Kevin Warsh is a believer that the so-called real side of the economy has got the short end of the stick owing to quantitative easing, Easing, why shouldn't that be a red flare for the stock market? I don't know. Evan, I'm asking rhetorically, but you can venture an opinion. What do you think?
1: I think the future is uncertain, especially 12 months from now. On Tuesday, the market thought uh, the, the Central Bank of Canada wouldn't raise rates on Wednesday, and they didn't seem to get that very well. 24 hours seems to be pretty hard to predict, That's what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> Amen. Um, Evan, I want to hear from you. I think our readers want to hear from you, our viewers want to hear from you on the matter of Facebook and the census and the accuracy of those data as well, and not to mention the macroeconomic data that drive our data-dependent monetary policy makers. But first, but first, a word from our sponsor, one of our sponsors. Now, Health IQ is... um, I don't know. This is a this is a product that I I I think this is this is this is for the readers of Grants and for the listeners of the Grants podcast and for the lucky readers of Phil Grant's almost daily Grants because it speaks to a kind of person known as um, I don't know, like a workout nut or a gym rat or a hard body. I mean, there are a lot of you out there. I know it. So um, Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health conscious people get special life insurance rates, and I suppose Phil, that means. Lower rates, right?
2: I think so. I think that's the implication. Uh,
0: Lower rates. So do you work out five times a week? Yeah, of course. And what's wrong with the sixth day? Never mind. So Health IQ advocates for a health-conscious lifestyle. It uses science and data to secure special rates on life insurance for health-conscious people, including avid cyclists, runners, strength trainers, vegans. Vegans? That's not about health. That's about vegans and more. I see they don't mention boxing. They don't mention... uh,
2: That goes without saying.
0: Yeah. Okay. In fact, it is widely known that those who frequently exercise with intensity have 22% lower cancer risk, 56% lower heart disease risk, the 34% lower risk of early death. Yeah. Historically, you get penalized for family history, BMI, other attributes. You don't get rewarded for your health conscious lifestyle. So health IQ rewards... You for your health conscious lifestyle with special rates on life insurance. So learn more and get a free quote at health.com slash grants. That's health IQ, health IQ.com slash grants. That's health IQ.com slash grants. Well done, health IQ. Now, Evan, you know, Facebook is, uh, knows everything about everything, right? Knows something about you, about Phil, about Eric.
1: About everyone.
0: Yeah, but doesn't know how many people there are in the United States of America.
1: It seems to have an awfully hard time counting, and this is funny, I mean, because if you go back to the promise of uh, online advertising, it's you, you pay for what people click on. It's not like a TV ad where somebody might skip over it with a TiVo, they might get up from the couch and pop some popcorn or grab a beer from the fridge. But when you pay for an ad on like Facebook, you pay for it when somebody views it or when they clicks on it. The problem is they seem to have a lot of trouble measuring things. Last year, they admit they wildly overestimated how long people viewed videos, which seems like a relatively simple thing to count. You just count the number of seconds the videos watched. But they apparently got that wrong. Ad News, which is a, uh, a trade rag in Australia...
0: A uh, trade publication, given what they're about to re- re- reveal, yeah.
1: A revered trade publication in Australia found that Facebook claims to reach 1.7 million more people <laughs> aged 16 to 39 in Australia than actually live there.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg, however doesn't live in Australia
1: he doesn't he uh he famously lives in California although he's touring the 50 states uh like a a presidential aspirant Brian Weiser at pivotal research uh decided to try the 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 same approach that ad news took in Australia to the U.S. and he found that Facebook ads manager claims to to find uh 41 million people age 18 to 24 in the U.S. Uh, unfortunately the U.S. census only finds uh 31 million
0: Wait, Mark Zuckerberg does live in America though right?
1: Uh, last I checked. How could he miss this? Anyway, go on. Well, he, he didn't miss it. He found 10 million more, you know, young oh, people than. Oh
0: yeah, yes, so it was counting, multiplying by. Yeah. Okay.
1: Now, if you if you if you read Facebook's financial uh, literature, you you might find this funny. This is from nearly the front page of their 10-K report. They say, our data limitations may affect our understanding of certain details of our business. For example, while user provided data indicates a decline in usage among uh, younger users. This age data is unreliable because a disproportionate number of our younger users registered with an accurate age. Accordingly, <laughs> accordingly, our understanding of uh, usage by age may not be complete. So so they're telling you they don't really know how many young people are on there, and they're, they're showing declines. But this actually gets to a lot of problems. Uh, Facebook and uh, Google right now control 20% of all ad spending in the U.S. And analysts uh, say they'll capture half of all ad spending in the world by 2020. And the stock's value-based off of that. But... um. According to EMarketer, which is uh, an, another uh, revered revered trade uh, trade publication, Snapchat's besting Facebook for people age 12 to to 24. More people are going on to... But um, sure these kids be doing their homework. Um, probably. Yeah, well, maybe they're doing their homework on Snapchat. They're taking pictures <laughs> of uh, huh. the test answers and they're sending it over to their friends. Multitasking. And the uh, the they go on to say that outside of uh, Facebook cutters, teens and tweens remaining on Facebook seem to be less engaged, which means maybe seeing fewer ads.
0: Yeah. By way of full disclosure, Grant's uh, has a fatwa on uh, on Facebook. You can read our analysis, which is, I must say, it was one of our better, I think it was a fabulous piece of analysis. You can read it uh, if you subscribe to Grant's That's what you can do. Phil Grant, I, I want to close uh, with you and with a little bit of news from uh, the region of the Near East embracing the neighboring states of Afghanistan in one second. But I, I want to tell our listeners a little bit just about this mattress company that, uh, that I think that this is, this is a, a mattress company that has a clear view of its financial clientele. And I say this for the following reasons, that uh, Casper is uh, obsessively engineered, a shockingly fair price. That's kind of a, a Graham and Dodd situation. And get this, the product design features a marriage between foam layers for ideal firmness. So there's a little bit of a sizzle there as well. That's so right. not just cold not just analysis. Steak. Yeah. Design developed and assembled right here in the USA by an in-house team of engineers uh, who spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It uh, combines supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that got just the right amount of sink. That's S I N K, not in sync. That's sink. right. Okay. And just right matter a bounce. So, sync and balance are financial terms, aren't they? Eh? Well, yeah.
1: Although the market seems to bounce more than sync. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, plus, uh, a breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. And uh, buying a Casper mattress is completely risk free, which brings to mind. Uh, uh, some people's view of Facebook, not ours, and others people's view of treasury bills. So Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up, refund your everything, with over 20,000 reviews, and an average of 4.8 stars is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. So when it doesn't end there, as a listener to the Grant's podcast, you can save an additional 50 bucks as one of our audience members by going to casper.com slash grant Pub G-R-A-N-T-P-U-B, And entering the promo code GrantPub. That's Casper.com slash GrantPub. Yeah. Oh, terms and conditions apply. So Phil, tell us tell us about the interest rate news from Central Asia.
2: So we have, a, uh, we have a new development in the saga of uh, Tajikistan and their first ever 10-year bond, which was, has been marketed for uh, the past few weeks. The roadshow concluded yesterday and the price is, is now known. As of uh, last week, the investment banks um, managing the sale were expecting a, uh, the, the $500 million uh, 10-year note to yield about 8%. A few days ago, that expected yield declined to 7.5%. And today we have the formal pricing uh, that 10 year uh, note came in at a yield of seven and an eighth, 7.125% on $500 million of 10 year uh, Tajiki paper. Tajikistan's GDP per capita uh, footed to just over $800 per year in 2016, according to uh, estimates from the IMF. And of that, uh, roughly half was in the form of. Um, of remittances from workers uh, overseas who had, had taken, you know, jobs in, in the Russian oil fields and were, were then sending back money to their families. So Tajikistan is on the board, and uh, their 10-year debt can be yours at uh, with a nice uh, 7 and an eighth uh, yield. Wasn't that oversubscribed, was it? Uh, yes, I believe so. I don't have that uh, info in front of me, unfortunately.
0: Evan, uh, uh, we close with a note uh, on interest rates in Europe. Uh, I understand that uh, another of the member states of the uh, Eurozone um, has succeeded in issuing sovereign debt at a nominal yield of less than zero. Which Eurozone member might that be?
1: Oh, it would have to be one of the core ones because it's less than zero. So maybe Austria or, or France? no.
0: Uh, Phil, do You happen to have a guess? I
1: do. Um,
2: I, I can guess uh, Switzerland, but I don't know. Oh.
0: Eric, do you know which one? I do not. Cyprus is the, is the correct answer. Didn't they have some banking troubles a couple years ago? They did. Those. That's ever. Markets look ahead, not backward. <laughs> anyway, ladies and gentlemen, speaking of uh, looking ahead, we will be with you in a week's time. And I thank you for bearing with us today. And, uh, I don't know, think Think Casper mattresses, think health IQ, think working out constantly, and think Grant's interest rate observer. Till next time, this is Jim Grant for Grants.